Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about human nature, the human spirit, freedom, and war. I've been thinking about what brings out the best in us and what brings out the worst. And I've been thinking about whether some people really are simply bad at the core, or if it's all a matter of circumstance. My guest today is Simon Sebag Montefiore. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Romanovs, a prior guest here on That Got Me Thinking, and has a brand new novel out, Red Sky at Noon. Welcome, Simon, and thank you so much for joining us here on That Got Me Thinking. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you back. It's great. It's great to be back, and it's great to be with you, and lovely to be talking. And um, Red Sky at Noon completes the Moscow Trilogy but also stands alone, as do the other two novels. Maybe tell us a bit about the prior two works, just to set the um, stage. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, the interesting, the interesting thing is, of course, this wasn't meant to be a trilogy. I just wrote them. I started off the first one, which is Sashenka, and that's the story of a, of a girl um, in, the, in the Russian Revolution who married a top Bolshevik and who, at the height of Stalin's purges, has, has an affair with the wrong man that, um, that embroils her in an investigation and a terrible downfall in which she can lose her family. And so it, it's like, like the subsequent novels. It's, it's about a Jewish family in Russia um, through the 20th century in times of war, revolution, and terror, um, that the history is, is all correct. But really, these are stories about love, about freedom, um, as you said in the introduction, um, they're really stories about human spirit and how you can survive, um, how love works, how marriage works, you know, how family works. But they're also thrillers um, with, with intrigue, with conspiracy. And that was the first one, Sashenka. And the second one was called One Night in Winter. And that was the story about how two children in the most elite school in Moscow in the, in the middle of World War II, uh, two children shot each other, all were shot. And the case came to the notice of Stalin because it was the school where his own daughter was, was studying. And he ordered an investigation. Sixty children were, in, were arrested in what was called the children's case. And basically the school became the subject of this, um, this secret police investigation. But of course, what Stalin was really trying to find out from the children was what their parents were up to. So it exposed all sorts of secrets and love affairs um, about, you know, uh, about family life in, in the very top echelons of the, of, the, um, of, of the Communist Party, of the rulers of Russia. And like all of these stories, both stories were totally based on real stories I'd found when I was writing my history books, because I'm also a historian, and I've written a lot about Russia. And so in each case, um, they were inspired, and for example, Sashenka was inspired when I found a beautiful photograph of a girl and in the archives. And when I looked, um, looked at her story, I found that this was the photograph taken on the night she was arrested, and she was about 30. She was absolutely beautiful, and she was the mother of two children. She was an editor, and she was shot 10 days after this photograph was taken, and it was the last photograph ever taken of her. And so that was what inspired Sashenka. And One Night of Winter, the story about the schools, were inspired because I actually met, as old men, 
the children of one of Stalin's top um, henchmen, who told me that he'd been arrested aged, aged 11 in his pyjamas and taken, taken into prison for, for six months. And so I said, I've never heard that story. And he told me the story of the children's case. So each of them is inspired, but each of them can be, um, can be read alone. And, and, and each of them are really stories about women and love and family and adultery and war and terror. Did you know at the end of book two that there would be a book three? Definitely, yes. And by then I knew that, that, that it, would be, it would be a trilogy, and I wanted to have the Moscow trilogy, which in a way is a history of Russia as well. I mean, it's got, it has Stalin as a character in it, a new novel. Um, it has Beria, and all the sort of detail is, is correct. It also has, it also has Hitler as a, as, a, as a character in one scene. Are you finished with Stalin now? <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever quite be finished with Stalin. I've, I've written two history books about him, and, and also there's the Moscow Trilogy. But he's one of those fascinating characters. And um, as a writer, it's interesting writing about a period that you know so well, so intimately. And, you know, I, I really understand the way they, they thought at that time, the way, even the way Stalin thought almost, um, if, anybody, if anybody does. Um, and, and so I think there are other aspects of Russian history that I, that I you know, I, 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 mean, I, I don't think I'll ever be finished with Russia. And, and later in the interview, I want to talk about how that relationship that you have with Stalin and, and the rest of these characters has affected you and, and your life. But first, I want to talk about the heroes and the villains in Red Sky at Noon. And I think maybe we'll just start with Kolima, the zone, um, and the gulag, where you say, and the characters tell us again and again, my name is nothing, my surname is nobody. Yes. I mean, that's the key to survival in the gulag was uh, having no past, having no present, just trying to um, get through life without, without anyone noticing you, without anyone knowing who you were, and without your past coming back to destroy you. Because uh, one of the themes of the whole Moscow trilogy is what it's like to live in a place with no private life, but where everything is secret, but, and, and everything from your past can, in, can incriminate you in some in some way or other, you could be friends with somebody, you could have had an affair with somebody, you could have said something, you could say a joke. There are a million ways in a totalitarian regime like this to be destroyed. But the higher you got, uh, the further there was to fall, and the more exposed you were. I mean, in many ways, you just didn't want to be known. You didn't want your name to be known by Stalin or, or by the, you know, all the secret police. You, you just had to lie low. But if you were ambitious and you wanted to write and edit and make films, or, or as many of the characters do in these books, they're all set in this very elite world of the top families um, in the Soviet Union. If you wanted to do those things, you were exposed. And so um, Benya Golden, our hero, is sent off to the Gulag, to the Zone, as it's called, in the Far East, one of the most brutal camps um, in the whole Soviet Union. And there, the key thing is just to try and find a way to stay alive. And as a sensitive writer... Um, he would probably die very quickly. You know, after about three or four weeks breaking rocks in the, in the gold mines, he would die. He had to find a protector, and he finds a mafia boss. Um, the mafia boss of the criminals actually ran the camps, and um, he finds a mafia boss who wants to be a writer, who's fascinated by writing, who's based on a real person. Um, this, sounds, this sounds unlikely. Um, it isn't. And, um, and so... Um, uh, you know, they, he protects him. 
and all he has to do is, is, is give him lessons in literature um, every day, and in return, he gets to work in the hospital, and he's, he's able to survive. And, and yet and even that's not safe, right? There are these unspoken hierarchies, and there are these, uh, there's unknown languages and unknown identities yeah. and unknown sort of rules. You talk about man is wolf to man in the gulag, and there, and there are the, 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 it's called these jokers. And for Benya, he doesn't know how any of this works or who really anyone is. No, I mean, he doesn't. And that's the um, and that's the that's the way he has to discover, and we discover with him how it all works. And as he understands the system and the horror of it, um, a world where you know people are shot and their bodies are just left in the snow, and then and they kind of emerge and them and they emerge again in the you know in the thaw, um, in the spring. It's a really terrifying, corrupt, strange world. I mean, many people even died on the on the journey out there; and they never made it. Um, but then, of course, he has to sort of and of course, the war comes. And, and Ben is torn. He wants to join the war because he feels it's his duty, and yet he, that is not um, favored upon um, now in his new relationship with Jabba, and he sort of owns his life. The, the next sort of world he's thrown into is the Strafniki. Yeah, yeah, the Strafniki. And the Strafniki... Um, he wants to, I mean, Stalin had this crazy idea, which is typically Stalin-esque, which was to create um, battalions, regiments of the damned, to get criminals, uh, you know, people sentenced to the camps, murderers, and put them into these special um, regiments where they would just be thrown into any, on any suicide mission. They could, clean, they could clear minefields. And um, he... He, um, he wants to join us, but he's a political, a political prisoner, and very few politicals could join these, these, um, these, these penal battalions. But um, using the system, he manages to get into one, because he's a Jew and a Russian patriot, too. And so, you know, even though this is the clash of the two most ruthless, most, most appalling tyrants of all of human history, even though this is the the greatest war of annihilation, the Holocaust is happening on one side. Despite all of this, um, he wants, you know, he, he, he knows that he, uh, he, has to be on the, he has to be on the Russian side and he has to be fighting because, you know, he, he, you know Hitler is the ultimate enemy. And so he joins the Strathniki, the penal battalions, and he goes off to the front and he's sent down to the south. And we always think of Russian, the Russian war as kind of free, freezing cold ice, um, uh, uh, but in fact, um, in fact, this this part of the war in 1942 is a neglected part actually of World War Two when when um, when it was really fought on these kind of boiling hot, flat, rolling grasslands, uh, prairies really, where um, you know, which was real, which was which was horse country. And Benyus thrown into now a whole new world with new rules and new leaders and new secrets. And after his first battle, he says, death seems easier now. And, and we sort of see at the beginning of his transformation. He says, there's just one certainty, there's no going back to the old world. How is Benya beginning to be transformed by the war? Well, I mean, he, he, he finds a completely different side of himself. I mean, first of all, you know, having been a writer in the very bitchy, competitive, um, the competitive world of Moscow intelligentsia that we that we know and love, um, 
and um, and which we are all familiar with. You know, it's, it's not unlike it's not unlike the you know the, the intelligentsia in New York or London. Um, I um, you know he he you know he, he finds himself he enjoys the simplicity of life in um, he enjoys the simplicity of life among these these rough people, Cossacks, horses, um, criminals, murderers. Um, and he's the only intellectual. He's the only Jew. He's the only intellectual that um, that you know who is in the um, who is in who is in this kind of in this regiment. And, uh, and and he begins to find a simplicity in his life with the horse, the mo- early mornings, the rough life. He finds companionship because virtually all his former life has been destroyed. The woman he loves, Sashenki, doesn't know she's alive or dead. He's um, he's lost his life as a writer. He can never write again. He had this one bestseller. That all seems like in another, in a vanished world to him. He doesn't know where his parents are. They've been swallowed up in the Nazi invasion, and so, and so he finds this great refreshment, this poetical simplicity, the beautiful countryside, the grasslands, and he becomes very close to his horse, Silver Sock. And he also develops this new internal conflict because he's finding this new side of himself. After the first battle, he's both feeling a little bit guilty, but also pleased with this new reputation that he has for brutality and this new awakening in himself of sort of this ability that he never knew was there. That's right. I mean, I mean this, this is inspired a little bit by Siegfried Sassoon, the war poet uh, in England, who, who hated the war um, was an intellectual, a poet, a sensitive man, and yet turned out to be absolutely brutal and brilliant at fighting. So, so you know, this, this does happen. And similarly, it's based on Isaac Babel, one of my heroes, the great, great writer who wrote, who wrote The Red Cavalry, and who is, who is, who is, who is in some ways a bit one of the, one of the bases for, um, for Benya Golden, my hero. But when he goes into battle, he starts, something about him suddenly switches and he becomes this ferocious warrior. So, so that you're right, even, all the, even the other Cossacks laugh, laugh and say, my God, this guy, this Jew, turns out this Jew can really fight. He can really ride and he can really fight. And so, yes, that's right. He's kind of half appalled at himself and half rather, rather pleased um, to, be killing, to be killing Nazis. Seems like a good idea. Until he finds out that they aren't German, the people he's killing. They're Italian. And when did you decide to make Benya a writer? That seems one thing that is constant throughout the book, from the beginning to end, that whenever he's being shaken in, in internally or externally, he says, um, I'm a writer. I'm, you know, when they try to call him anything yeah. else, he says, no, I'm a writer. When, when did you decide that, that he would be a writer? He was always going to be a writer. He appears, he's the writer that um, Sashenka has a love affair with in the, in the first book of the Moscow Trilogy. So he's always a writer. And his story is based, as I mentioned, on this Isaac Babel, this great writer, Soviet writer, who, um, who had all these love affairs at the very top of the Soviet um, society and was destroyed by them. And he was actually, he was actually executed in 1940 by Stalin. But, um, you know, he was, he, when he was with, with the Red Cossacks, the Red Cavalry, he was very aware that he was the only intellectual for, for hundreds of miles and the only intellectual in this wild group of men. And so, um, and it's the same with Benya Golden. He, you know, he's, he's, he's a soldier now. He's lost his entire identity. And yet he always looks at the world as, as, as a writer would. And it means that, and that's a useful technique for me, because it means that he's always describing, the whole book takes place really through his eyes. And he describes, 
she describes things in a way that a typical soldier wouldn't. Certainly, a, an uneducated um, cutthroat in, the, in one of these um, punishment battalions. So, um, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, go on. Well, so let's talk about identity a little bit because also in the Strafniki, we've got. Um, Malishko, who I think his, he's pretty one of the more solid identities. He's a sort of a soldier through and through. And then we have Dr. Capto, who we, as it goes on, we learn more and more, and we realize he is probably one of the most of the characters who isn't what he seems, and yet his actions are continually surprising us throughout. Yes, that's right. I mean, first of all, I mean, Identities were, first of all, identities themselves were, you know, are something that the book looks at because um, one forgets that the, you know, the Soviet Union, the Russian, the Russian Empire, was full of all these different nationalities. There weren't just Jews, there were Cossacks, um, and there were Kalmyks who were sort of uh, descended from the Mongols and a horseman um, from the steppes. And then there, were, you know, then there were Ukrainians and there were Russians. And then on the sort of German side, you won't forget that there are not only Germans, Nazi, Nazi Germans, but there are also Romanians, Hungarians, and Italians. So this is a sort of multinational, sort of a, a, literally um, a cauldron of, of nationalities. But you're right, Melishko is a lovely character. He's, he's a sort of proper, Russian, honest, Russian, decent soldier through and through. And, every, and he rides a horse called Elephant, which is, which is a huge... Sort of um, uh, sort of cart horse, and and everything about him is honest and direct, and and you know he's like many of the characters you read about in these in these um, memoirs. You know he kept he all he cared about was his unit, and and he was an honourable man. He was an honourable man. But then you got but then the you know this this system was full of kind of people who who had been turned, who were defecting, who were traitors, or or who weren't quite who they said they were, who were working for the security services in some way. So Dr. Capto is the hero of the camps, and he comes with Benya to join this punishment battalion as the doctor. And he seems like a, a, a heroic person who'd looked after the children, run a kindergarten in the, in the camps, and, and had re- and helped save um, Benya's life. But when, it, when he gets to the front, it turns out that he's got... Um, he, he has a, he's, a, he's a very different person than they all thought he was. And ultimately, um, you know, he, his destiny has many twists and turns. But ultimately, he isn't, he isn't, the, he isn't who anybody thinks he is. He's, um, he, he's involved, involved in dark stuff. And he's a very, very dark person. When when you talk about Stalin, we're reminded again and again that he's a Georgian, and I think this is something that's so important throughout the book, as you just say, as far as identity, that's something we might not, in the States or in other countries in, in Europe, understand in Russia how important it is, these sort of divisions between um, the different, and I, I guess I'll just call them cultural ethnicities. I'm not sure how else to define them. Um, but that seems to be a very important one as far as Stalin goes. And he is a um, consistent character also in his, I'd say, inconsistencies, but they're, they're consistent. Um, Triumph Whatever the Cost, which I, I just recently saw the new Winston Churchill movie, and, and sort of he says yeah. the same thing, but I think they have different approaches um, in some regard. And, and maybe we can start with Stalin 
one's relationship to Malishko, because that's an area where you just understand in Stalin, he has no remorse or guilt whatsoever over Malishko. And he's also willing to sort of admit in a way that he was completely wrong and that now maybe Malishko was a good man all along. Well, this just turns up. I mean, these books, um, all three of the Moscow Trilogy, and especially this one, Red Sky at Noon, are really about the sort of extraordinary, grotesque, bizarre reversals of fortune that can happen in these systems. And given the fact that so many people who are sentenced to terrible punishment, tortured, executed, are actually innocent, while many guilty people are promoted and rise to great power and glory. So it's a really um, contradictory world. And so Stalin, um, Stalin has just, in the 30s, had this, had this purge of the military where many, many generals, marshals, colonels were, all, were executed for nothing. And he'd in a way mutilated his own military power by doing that. But um, when the war started, those who were still alive were suddenly brought back, promoted, and many of them you know, went to see Stalin or, or Stalin knew that they'd been brought back. And he, 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 blamed, the, um, he blamed the sort of torture on other people. And so with Milishko, Stalin knew exactly who he was. He was a really a, a top officer who'd been arrested for nothing, um, tortured, and now Stalin knew he was and rather admired him all along. He didn't even know he was alive. But when he finds out he's alive, he, put, he wants him promoted to colonel again. And he actually telephones him um, just before the offensive starts and talks to him on the phone. And um, this actually happened many times. So, so uh, the, you know, this, this strange relationship that Stalin had with, with people, um, you're right, was remorseless, merciless, but often subtle and surprising. And Stalin... Is such an interesting character. And I think in the fiction, um, though I've written two history books about him and spent many, many years working on Stalin as a historical character, in fiction sometimes you can get closer to him uh, because you can, you can fill in the dots, as it were, which you wouldn't do in a history book. So the Stalin you see here is a kind of real Stalin, I feel. And, um, and that makes it fun to write, but I hopefully fun to read too. And was he a good war and, and battle strategist? He, he initiates, in the book, he initiates counterattacks without preparations. And then, as you said, in, in 1937, he was shooting his own generals. No, he was a sort of, no, at the beginning, he was just an absolutely disastrous, pig-headed, negligent, um, unrealistic, delusional. And he cost the Soviet Union millions of men. I mean, no other system, in no other system would, would such a commander have survived. Uh, but because he'd killed everybody, he had, absolute, he had absolute power on his side, which is why he killed all those people, incidentally. So it had kind of worked. And he, um, he, he, you know, he was disastrous. So he was continually sending people in, um, in offensives and attacks that, were, that the generals advised against, and millions more men were lost. And this is what happens in, in Red Sky and Moon, except that he's doing it for a reason. He's He's, he's doing it for, for, for another reason. He's sacrificing the entire um, punishment battalion in order to, in order to, get, something, to get something across to the Nazi side, and you'll, you find out what that is. But Stalin was a master of espionage, and this is, this is, this, this, this is the reason, uh, as we discover in the book, and I don't want to give too much away. And, and the numbers in the book, you said, you know, over a million people, the number in the Numbers throughout the book are staggering, almost so much so that they're hard to comprehend, I think. I think you have to really stop while you're reading and think about every time you're given sort of a number of 
um, soldiers who were killed or people that were imprisoned um, and, and really try to wrap your, your mind around it. And one of those numbers that was really surprising to me, and maybe we can focus a little bit on this, is the numbers in the cavalries. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the Cossacks and their relationships to the horses and silver socks in particular. Uh, but just the, the uh, incredible number of cavalry units that the Soviets were using because they were short on tanks and there had been some, some problems with, with the tanks. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the strangest things is that um, we're, we're always told that um, the last sort of cavalry charge was the Polish cavalry charge against the Nazi panzers in 1939. But in fact, the last great cavalry battles um, in, in, in you know, world history were during this offensive across the southern steppes in 1942. And um, Stalin was short of tanks, as you say, but he had something like 17 million um, cavalry horses left. So amazingly, even though he understood that it was an age of machines, this was a war of machines, and whoever had the best machines and the most machines would win, he also realized that he needed men, so he started to recreate cavalry regiments. And so there were sort of almost a million new cavalry created in 1942, and Benio is one of those. And I think um, they were also facing cavalry because the Italians weren't really fully mechanized. They had, they had Italians, the, the Italians had cavalry, and they, they actually, um, they actually you know, performed very well in some of the last sort of full-scale frontal charges of cavalry. So all this sort of for, this forgotten war was happening in 1942, and, I've, and one, of the, one of the fun things about Red Sky at Noon is there'll be aspects of World War II that people, people won't, won't expect and, and, and won't know about. And so part of it is the cavalry. So into these cavalry, obviously, Stalin drafted the Cossacks, but the Cossacks, many of them had been uh, repressed by the Soviets in the Soviet terrors. They were, they were essentially anti-Soviet, and so that in the camps there were many of them, in the prison there were many of them, and many of them defected to the Nazi side. So they were very unreliable, but of course they were in the punishment battalions, they were very useful. And because they had all these horses, um, the Cossacks formed the sort of backbone of these, of these cavalry units. And Benya is with them, and they, they have a special relationship to their horses. And they say in the, um, in the book, and this is exactly what they said in real life, they said, like, you know, treat your horse like your mistress, your daughter, your wife. Um, you know, feed her, stroke her, be kind to her, beat her. And everything was connected to the... Your, your entire survival was connected to your horse and how well you knew your horse and, and if your horse could perform as they rode across. Um, the prairie, these, these steps. And so um, Benya really, who has no one else now, falls really in love with his, his horse in many ways, and his, his whole survival depends on silver stock. And, and it's mutual in the sense of how he treats, it's sort of the one consistent relationship as far as how he treats silver socks does directly then affect how silver socks treats him, whereas I'm not sure any of the other relationships in his life at that time are, are as consistent. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, he realizes that he's got to be straight with silver socks. Silver socks get, can be jealous, and when he when he when he when he when he finds a new human relationship, silver socks is a little put out and sort of sulks. Um, but but silver socks is really a tremendous. Hall. I actually love that character, and you know, their relationship is such a poignant one. And I loved writing about. I used to ride when I was young, and I love I love horses. I think they're so beautiful. 
but this was a special time when man and man and horse were were needed each other and were had a, were specially linked together. Their fates were linked together. Well, and I hadn't thought about this before while I was reading it, but and the fact that he had this one thing, and that maybe for survival in such brutal, unpredictable circumstances, you do need this one thing that is keeping you alive and grounded and and um, in some way stable. That's right. I mean, this relationship. But, I mean, it's the routine of horses, too, that is very reassuring for, for all of them and for the Cossacks, too. The fact that you have to feed your horse, you water them. When you arrive somewhere, uh, you have to keep special care and you have to find them food always. And these are things that, these are things that add to the sort of reassuring, uh, the reassuring routine of life that is, that, is, that is so essential in this terrifying free fall into annihilation. And so you're right, you know, that, the fact that you have to look after the saddles, the girths, the you know the, the rhythm, the rhythm of of, of life in, of cavalry life, is something that Benya especially um, relishes. But of course, for the Cossacks, it's the heart of their way of life. All right, well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I am speaking to New York Times bestselling author Simon Sebag Montefiore. And I saw also say historian, because if anyone Googles you and anything about Russia, you will be the first thing that comes up, I think, on pretty much any search. And um, we are talking about his very recent book, Red Sky at Noon. And this is KDPI 88.5 FM Community Radio. We're listener-supported, non-commercial, streaming live at kdpifm.org. All right, we're back. So, Simon, I want to talk about some of the other um, characters in the book, the Russian collaborators, the Germans, and, and the Italians. They all are, are playing large parts. And I think there was another number that was surprising to me, that there were 25,000 uh, Italians, I think it was maybe killed, and then 50,000 um, captured in the Stalingrad battle. So, so the numbers was, of Italians yeah. that were there. Well, it was just amazing. Now, this is, again, a, different, you know, a vanished part of history, which I think people will find interesting, is that you know, there were 350,000 Italians uh, sent by Mussolini to fight for Hitler, in Russia, and at the, you know, but when the moment the, the novel starts, um, nothing's gone wrong yet with Hitler's um, war. Really, they've just, they've just conquered all before them, pushing all before them, and so the Italians are having a sort of a great time. I mean, they don't want to be in Russia at all. They're not committed to the Nazi project. Um, and the, the funny thing about the Italians is that they're they're so Italian. You know, they are all. When you read all the accounts of them, and I read many accounts of the um, what the Italians were like on this Russian expedition. They were, they were so quintessentially Italian. They, all their kind of passwords were sort of op- operas. Um, they were continually talking about girls and wine and, and singing. Um, they, were, they spent a lot of time trying to make pasta and grind coffee in their, you know, even though they were thousands of miles from Italy. So that, that's, that's, that's the, the, the Italian expedition to Russia. And you're right, I mean, they... Soon after the, 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 the events in my um, novel, um, they were literally um, decimated. And I think the numbers were, were even greater than you, you mentioned. I mean, I think they, I think you know, out of sort of 350,000 men, I think sort of very few returned, really. I mean, 80,000 maybe or 70,000 returned. The, the rest vanished. And this was important because actually... Um, Actually, the people you read about in the book, all of them would, you know, all, all the Italian characters would have probably been killed. Very few survived on a terrible um, retreat from Stalingrad. 
in the in midwinter. But of course, the novel takes place in boiling hot, boiling hot summer, and the Italians are in these kind of picturesque villages on the in the Don um, steppe, and it seems like the war's going well, but it's just about to turn. So let's talk about some of the contradictions of war in general, but this war in particular, and in Russia in particular. Um, it struck me that, you know, they're, they're frequently shooting their own, and yet they have doctors and nurses, and that they keep paperwork on everything, that even in the gulag and, and then throughout the war, I, I kept being surprised at sort of how they were trying at least to keep track of things, which seemed so contrary to everything else that was going on. Well, it's true. I mean, the Russians, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks were obsessed with keeping records of everything, and they were, they were sort of intellectuals themselves, so they, were, they respected paper and records and so on. So yeah, I mean, there are huge archives even now that survive um, of all the sort of much of the terror, and much of it would be incriminating in any normal system. Um, there are, I've read many documents with death lists signed by Stalin, um, and, and, you know, and all of this was recorded and kept. So, uh, yes, I mean, you know, it, it's a strange thing. Uh, and yes, they were executing thousands, hundreds of thousands of their own men on the, on the Russian side for, for, for betraying um, the cause, for possibly betraying for insubordination for a lot of reasons. They had blocking battalions behind the armies, and if anyone tried to retreat, they, they just executed them. So they just machine-gunned them down. Um, and, of course, in the punishment battalions that the Benio is serving in, I mean, their, their, their life itself, their very lives are on, are on sort of um, uh, on ice. And if they do anything, any insubordination, they can be executed immediately without trial. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, terrifying, it's a terrifying world. And yet, um, you can see that the real theme of the book is the, is the relationships that you can make in this incredibly um, diabolical world. And that's why um, when, when Benya Golden meets um, this Italian nurse, that relationship is so important because out of all this hell, um, you know, love, even human kindness, um, there, is, there, is, there is redemption in those things despite everything. I'm thinking about, and this was earlier, I think, in relationship to Dr. Capto, it said, so who was he really? And, and I was thinking about an, another element that you just mentioned that runs through the book about what war allowed people to be or do for a time. And that is really amplified in the relationship with Benya and Fabiana, the nurse. Yes. I mean, war, I mean, I think if you talk to people in my parents' generation, the war generation, um, they talk a lot about um, how you know people had love affairs in war. They would meet someone, um, even you know, even in the Blitz in London. You know, they would they would you could meet you you could meet somebody um, in the middle of a, a street on fire and have a relationship with them. You might never see them again. So this is so much part of war. People were thrown into environments they would never normally be thrown into. And even as a war correspondent myself in the early 90s in the ex-Soviet Union, you know, I I, I was I was single then. I would. You, know, you would sometimes meet people, and you could have a kind of almost an entire love affair, an entire relationship. Um, you know, uh, in one in 24 hours, so much was happening. Life was so intense, and this is the theme when um, Benya, um, who is wounded, meets this Italian nurse Fabiana, who's a, who's, a, who's a wonderful character. And I love, I love to write female characters, and readers 
um, write to me a lot about them. They even paint them and draw them and send them to me. Um, I, I, I love strong, intelligent character, female characters, and she she is one of them. A bit like Sashenka in the first in the, in the first part of the um, trilogy, and she um, she she's she's out there at the war. She's a nurse. She loves poetry. Her husband is a serving officer, and, and yet she and Benya are thrown together, and they have this um, complete affinity for each other, and they find this intimacy, and both of them are, in a sense, desperate characters, as we discover, and their relationship is, is doomed, because um, from the Italian, from the fascist side, um, she cannot have a relationship with a Russian subhuman, yet alone a Jew, of course, I mean, this is in the middle of the Holocaust. The Holocaust is taking place behind the German lines at this very moment in the novel, and, we, and Benya sees parts of it happening, though he doesn't understand the wider picture. And at the same time, um, to fraternize with, a, with, a, with one of the fascists would be, uh, would be instant execution for anybody on the um, Russian side, too. So they realize that they're in this kind of, they're like flotsam thrown on this kind of, on, on these, this huge, these huge waves of a storm. But the moment the sea calms, they, they have to be back on their own side or, they, or, they, or it will be fatal for both of them. And so they have this love affair. It's such a passionate love, so poignant, and yet it's doomed. They both know that. And so you have this one moment, not only in history, but in, in the war, that is sort of the peak of chaos and brutality. You've got... I think over 600,000 ex-Soviet citizens uh, serving Germany. The one, one of the few characters that are historical was the, although they're all based um, very closely on history, but one of the actual characters was the German soldier, um, yeah. Dürlwanger. Not, not a nice guy. Dürlwanger, who is like, I mean, so, so. Um, Dürlwanger is, is is a real character. He was, he was part of the Isaac group and these kind of um, mobile units of um, police and sort of cutthroat murderers who were um, executing Jews uh, you know, as the, in, in the wake of the German armies as they advanced. And Donovan was one of the worst of them. He, he had a sort of um, an, a, a unit of ex-criminal, ex-rapists. I mean, he was actually had been to prisons for raping children. So you know, he was... He was a first-rate psychopath, sociopath, a proper monster, and the sort of man who is promoted, own, could only be promoted, could only flourish, could only thrive in, in, in a war like this, a war of annihilation. And um, he, you know, he, so he's a real character. And in the end, he was actually executed by Himmler. So you can imagine for someone who was actually too much even for Himmler, um, you can imagine what kind of revolted character he was. And he's, he's a character in the book, and I... They're pretty much, he's pretty accurate in terms of how I've described him. And there are other, there are other appalling characters who are based on these, who are based on these historical characters. Um, you, you know, many of them are Russian defectors, as you, that you mentioned, who are now fighting for the Nazis and, of course, hate Jews, hate communists. And they all contributed to this, to the, to this war of annihilation, this dark time in human history. So you talk about that moment that Benya and Fabiana have where it's sort of a, a, a short, brief period of freedom. And 
if you think about either prior to or after, there really is no hope for Benya for complete freedom. Even after the war, if he survives, um, he's going back to his original history and also uh, communist oppression. How does Benya find internal places of freedom, do you think, throughout the novel? That's the thing, that's the thing about living in a, in a totalitarian state, which, which we can barely imagine in America or England. But, um, but the whole point is to find that, you, that humans can find private, private moments in their soul and heart. And of course, you know, the whole art of it is to find people you can share those moments with. So you have to trust someone absolutely to do that, of course. And there aren't many people you can trust, but there are people. And um, that's why if you read, you know, read accounts of the Soviet, Soviet life, you know, husbands and wives often spent a lot of time whispering in the bathroom with the, with the water running and, or walking in the countryside on their own to talk and never talking in the house, for example. So there are so many ways that you, and of course you could find, um, you could find kindred spirits, but there were very few and you have to be absolutely certain of them. So... Um, Benya, Benya has a great sense of humour. He loves um, he, he loves life. He loves reading. He loves he loves um, he loves books. Uh, he loves he, he loves horses. He, he's a he's a bon vivant by nature. Um, he loves women, of course, and so that's also part of you know he he finds he finds love of, you know he finds love he finds beautiful women a, a, you know some a, a place that he a place. Um, uh, an experience that he that he gives him makes him feel alive in this in, in the midst of this darkness. So I was thinking about the Kremlin, and I I was thinking about what it would be like living in a world where there's really no predictability. I was thinking about you know growing up with alcoholic or abusive parents, where there's constant stress and there's no personal control, and and truth is elusive. Both you can't tell when other people are telling the truth, even if they may be a best friend, and you can't tell the truth. And I'm wondering where you think that leads a population. Well, I think it creates a great sickness, and I think. Um, in a weird way, the, you know, that you see that it's slightly in, in, in the sort of behavior of the Russian, Russian people even now, you know, that the fact that, um, the fact that um, people who grew up in that time were damaged by the truth, by what it did to people, the way that it, um, it, um, it, 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 it scorched the soul and um, purged, this, purged creativity and freedom and, 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 peered, and purged nature, really. So... And I think it has a relevance. That's why Red Sky at Noon, I feel um, people have said to me, God, it's sort of relevant with what's happening to us today with, 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 with our fears of where Trump could lead, could lead the West, for example, and you know, the, the, growth of, the growth of tyranny, the, 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 the damage to truth, um, and all these things that, that we're seeing, that we're experiencing right now. So I think you're right. It is a very strange. It's a very, very strange environment to, to for people to live in, to grow up in, and and in and in and in the novel, you know, there are there are younger people as well, and they they grow up with this, and they never recover from the damage it does to them. And and how has it been for you personally spending so much time um, with this brutality and and this sort of twisted history. How, how do you manage that? Are you like a method actor, you know, when you're writing, you're in that world and in that moment, and you're able to, to then, um, you know, stop it when you come. But you've spent so many years uh, studying and reading and, and understanding this world. Yes, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I, I have. And, you know, I wrote those two books on Stalin. I've also written about, 
Jerusalem, which is which is another barbaric, um, another sort of barbaric world where terrible things have happened. But you're right, the Soviet uh, the Soviet um, phenomenon is 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 unusual, and it's so dark, and it actually I'm not like a method actor. It has got it has got to me. And I do find that I, when I was, especially when I was reading archives and working on these death lists and studying the, the destinies of these families that were just destroyed, um, the death of children, the, the, the torturing of grown-ups, and I must admit it did, it did get to me. And in part of, um, part of it, part of it was I had, you know, I had nightmares about, and the nightmare was always like how I would perform if I was about to be executed in one of, in, in one of these terrors. And Stalin always asked his. His executioners. He says he says to them like, how did the, how did he perform? You know, how did he act in the last minutes when he was about to be executed? And I don't I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd conduct myself very well, um, is the answer. But I had that dream quite quite often. But part of the part of the cure for it for me was was to write these novels and to write Red Sky at Noon. In in the book, Gorky says of war regarding war, the grit in all of us. Do you agree with what Gorky's perception of of war was? That element. Yeah, I think I think um, what what that what he says is 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 true. That you know, first of all, for I think for a writer, you know, there are two sort of great subjects um, to write about for a novelist, and I, I I speak as a novelist here, which is that one is one is war. Which is the grit in all of us? It, everything is distilled down to its essentials, and the other, of course, is love and um, love in all its different um, different uh, faces. Love, love for family, love for husband and wife um, in marriage, and, and 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 secret love, passion. Um, you know, you know, and, and all of those, all of those are, are in conflict with each other, um, and so, um, so to write about both war. Uh, in all its darkness and love, which which I'm doing in this novel is is actually is actually a wonderful thing for a writer to do, and I and I've I relish the challenge. You said of Red Sky at Noon um, that it's a novel and it should be enjoyed as a novel, no more, no less. Was it hard for you to say goodbye, or is it it's recent? What is it hard for you to say goodbye to these characters of the the trilogy? Yes, I mean. Yes, very much so. I mean, I, I, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying I won't one day return to them, actually, because, you know, especially these great characters, um, the women like, like, um, like Fabiana, but Sashenka in the first one, Dashka in the second one, and, and then the great sort of male characters like Benya and, and Stalin's henchman Satinov and others, they, they, you know, they're, creation, they're, they're total creations, and I really loved, loved living with them, writing them, and I understand them very well. And I really will miss them. I mean, I've, I, I sort of, I, I sort of feel, I feel their, their, um, their ups and downs, their, their twists of fate, very closely. And I love writing these novels. And actually, I'm, you know, yes, I'm, a, I'm a historian, but I also, I'm so excited that this trilogy is now complete, and it stands, it stands, um, it stands uh, on its own very well. And I think that also, there's, um, I'm now in negotiations to make. Um, the Moscow trilogy, these novels into into a TV drama series, which is very exciting. So, hopefully, that will happen, and um, the characters will reach an even wider audience. So, you said that the book is about love, survival, life—perhaps the most atrocious moment in the human experience. About the agony and the magic of love in any circumstances. What about that led you to bring in the relationship of Svetlana Stalina and Lev Shapiro? 
Oh, well, that's a good question because um, I thought it would be, I, I played with whether or not to do that or, or, or whether to do it, but I thought it was so interesting to have two love affairs, one at the very bottom of society and these, these, um, these fugitives, these, these, um, these, hunted, these hunted people down on the steps in the middle of this war in chaos. And then um, Svetlana Stalin, Svetlana Aleluyeva, as she became um, the daughter of, the, of, of Stalin himself, living in the Kremlin in his apartment um, with him as a sort of loving father, and how she, um, she starts this, this love affair when she's 16 um, with, with this 40-something um, very famous writer who is a bit of a ladies' man and is also a Jewish writer, in fact. And this, this part of the story is totally based on, on history and is pretty accurate. I've changed his name and changed some details. But she did, in fact, have this affair. And Stalin did find out about it. And the reaction, his reaction was pretty much as it happens in the book. And I think that it's, it just means that you can see love in two directions. And there's so much... Um, there's so much war in the book as well that I think that it's, in terms of style, it's 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 lovely to to alternate to leaven to leaven the to leaven the, the hard riding Cossacks with these these tender desperate tender short doomed moments of of love which I think is is so important and redemptive for everyone and even Svetlana Stalin growing up in the Kremlin actually she didn't know what had happened to her mother she found out her mother had actually committed suicide. She needed love too. She needed this sort of redemption, even however short it could be too. So there were real parallels, and really, what it's about: how in love and war, um, in, in in war and terror, um, love love is redemption, love is freedom, um, however short and however desperate it is. All right, I'll ask one last question, just because that's the benefit of being able to interview the author. But if you feel you can't answer, because we don't want to give anything away, then we'll just save it for, for next time. There was one part in the book where you foreshadow a conversation between Fabiana and Benya. And I realized afterward that that was the only time there was ever any foreshadowing. Yes, yeah, there is foreshadowing. All right, and, and, I lo- and maybe we'll have to talk about that off record. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I think, no, I think that, you know, I, I think that, um, I think foreshadowing, there's, there's a place for it. I think there's a place for it in the book. And I think, but anyway, their relationship is, is such a complex one and such a one with, um, with, with both, with both a past and as it turns out more of a future than perhaps we'd have guessed. All right. So I have been speaking with Simon Sebag Montefiore. He is the best-selling author of the Romanovs and uh, two other books in this trilogy, which now the third has just come out, Red Sky at Noon. So Simon, where can people get the book? I know it came out really recently. Um, and, and it's find everywhere. It it's, it's in all the bookshops. It's in all the bookshops. It's in it's in all the bookshops in America. Um, it's published by Pegasus Books and. Um, the, the other two books will come out in December. So, so this is a great one to start with. Um, of course, it's, it's also on Audible. You can listen to it. You can get it on Kindle. And the best way to get it is, is, in a, is, is on paper in a book. And I hope you 
hope you all enjoy it. And it's been really lovely talking to you. And, and you can read them in sequence or you can read them independently. I was just talking to my son yesterday about Star Wars and he was musing, how was he going to bring it to his children? Were they going to watch one through through? And now what is it, seven? Or was he going to start with four? And this was this big question to him. And I think it's the same with these books. They are so deep and intense. And I was thinking, oh, I would have had, how my experience would have been had I had I known Benya prior and, and approached it that way. But even if you're not familiar with the characters, it's really a wonderful, wonderful read. Thank you. That's right. great. Yes, you can read them in any order. And um, lovely to talk to you. Very, lovely to very talk to you. Deep questions. Thank you. All right. Okay. So, so wonderful to speak with you, Simon. And I will Thank just you. say now we're off that I appreciated that foreshadowing because I'm like, okay, oh, maybe, yeah. 